Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Are you enjoying the Single Tracks podcast? Well, we could use your support. The small but dedicated Single Tracks team works hard to share the mountain bike information that inspires epic adventures through this podcast, our worldwide database of trail maps and photos, and daily news and reviews on the website. So consider becoming a monthly, annual, or lifetime pro supporter and enjoy ad-free browsing on the website, free single track stickers in the mail, and discounts on merch for as little as $3 per month. Go to singletracks.com support to sign up and to find out other ways you can help support our mission. That's singletracks.com support. Thank you and happy trails. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Casey Coughlin. Casey teaches bicycle repair at Minneapolis College in Minnesota, and it's one of only two colleges that offer a certificate program in the subject. While applying to graduate school, she worked as a bike repair tech and later as a manager at Eric's Bikes in Rochester. Thanks for joining us, Casey. Thanks for having me. Well, it sounds like you've always had an interest in bikes, but you weren't necessarily looking to make a career out of it. What made you decide to switch gears around the time you were applying to graduate school? I grew I grew up on top of bikes. I uh, raced dirt BMX. Oh, cool! Um, when I was a lot younger, grew up riding riding bikes around the neighborhood, and then in my undergrad. Uh, I learned what I could about bikes by tinkering with them in my garage and bothering all of the bicycle mechanics that I knew. <laughs> yeah. I was getting a degree in English, uh, which meant that all of my academic time was spent thinking, reading, or writing. And I really like doing those things. It's not like it's a chore to do those things, but you know, it can, it can get taxing. Um, you can really kind of lose yourself in it and the, the kind of tactility. And the, the the physicality and the mechanical nature of bicycles and learning how to fix them and taking them apart and playing with them is just not only really satisfying, but it was a welcome reprieve mm-hmm. from um, a life of reading, writing, and thinking. Yeah. And I, I mean, I also did it just to satisfy the curiosity that I have about everything around me and how it works. I have a bad habit of taking things apart and then failing to get them back together again. I eventually figured out how to put the bikes back together, though. <laughs> yeah. After I got my uh, bachelor's degree, I applied to grad school. Uh, the long-term plan was to get a, a PhD in literature, um, and I did not get in and at any of the grad schools that I applied to. Mm. Um, I got a job as a mechanic at a shop, honestly, just to pay the bills until I could apply to grad school the next year. Yeah. And then it turned out that working as a bike mechanic was incredibly satisfying like the like problem of fixing a bicycle of getting a rider back out on the road of taking this complex mechanical machine that is broken and being able to figure out what's wrong with it and then fix it and do that like 20 times a day is just more satisfying than anything i'd ever done yeah interesting uh so i put put grad school on the back burner 
thought maybe, you know, I'll come back to this in a few years or maybe I'll just let my let my savings build up so that I can <laughs> apply because if you've ever applied to grad school, it's not cheap. Right. <laughs> yeah. Nothing about grad school is cheap, I guess, but it costs money to apply um, and all those kinds of things. And then when I looked up, enough time had passed that it didn't seem to make as much sense to me to continue my academic career. I really liked working on bikes and I um, just wanted to master that skill and uh, kind of do everything that I could in the bike world. And I was fortunate enough to work at a shop where I had opportunities for advancement and opportunities for education. And uh, it's it's been a lot of fun. And I really enjoy uh, working on bikes. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And yeah, clearly you've come full circle now teaching bicycle repair, you know, sort of back into academia, not the traditional type or what we think of, but yeah. Yeah. The satisfaction of getting somebody to that light bulb moment where they like figure it out on their own, like they have all the pieces and then they finally put them together is like at or above the satisfaction of fixing a bike. So putting the two together is like, I just, I couldn't be happier about where I'm at right now. Yeah. That's cool. Well, I want to ask you though, like when you first took the job at the bike shop, did you go in there with sort of a chip on your shoulder? Like, uh, you know, I'm just doing this temporarily. Like this isn't my thing. I'm really a, an English uh, literature expert. And so that's what I'm, I'm here to do. Yeah. How'd you get past that? And when did you say like, Oh, actually like this is a lot cooler. Yeah. Um, I think that ideas about, what work was and what mattered, what was important and sort of um, internalized ideas about what's more important, academia or working on bikes. And I think that it was, it was hard for me to, to give up the dream Mm -hmm. of uh, being professor Coughlin and, you know, working at a big university, teaching English, yeah. writing papers, getting published, that kind of thing. But I think that in the end, I'm, I'm so much better for the route that I've taken. And I teach at, I teach at a college now. So yeah, that's awesome. I'm better for having gone through the work of realizing that there's, there's a lot of work out there that people undervalue and they probably shouldn't. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, you know, the way that you learned the trade, I mean, first you started off sort of tinkering on your own at home, um, but then obviously you learned a lot on the job. Is that the way that most professional bike mechanics learn to bike or to work on bikes or or are they taking programs that maybe aren't as organized and, and rigorous as the one that you've created? I think that in in the industry, by and large, most people learn how to fix bikes by getting a job at a bike shop without knowing how to fix bikes. <laughs> and like on the job training is a part of the package. I think that there's, there are programs out there, uh, that offer education. I mean, there's, there's a lot of information out there on the internet now for better or for worse, but there's a plethora of information. And then you have programs like UBI or Barnett's that offer uh, sort of abbreviated versions of what we're doing at Minneapolis College and at NWAC in working with BIEA. I think that by and large, 
those programs aren't being utilized industry wide, mm-hmm. most of the time you get a, you learn how to fix bikes by getting a job at a bike shop. And I think that there's some problems associated with that, mostly because you have to convince a shop owner or a shop manager that you look like a bike mechanic. Mm, yeah. And so we wind up kind of reproducing the lack of diversity that exists in the workforce of bike mechanics right now, just because it's, it's a bunch of white men that run the bike industry and it, you know, through no fault of their own, they reproduce that workforce when they're the gateway to learning how to fix bikes. So to, to a certain degree, learning how to fix bikes is kind of a, a black magic that is held behind in the back of these shops. And in order to learn how to do it, you have to get hired as a mechanic. And to get hired as a mechanic, you have to look like a mechanic, which you can't always do. Even though you're not. That's so weird because it's like you have a bunch of people coming in and all of, none of them have experience. And so, yeah, you're just kind of left with like, well, let's just pick the one that looks like they're a mechanic. Yeah, or or I think I'm, I'm familiar, more familiar with the issues faced by women, but a lot of times, women who apply to bike shops will get pushed into a, a sales role. Hmm. Um, so you might you might still get hired at the shop, but if you really wanted to learn how to fix bikes, you kind of have to, in a lot of situations, fight for that, and you might wind up kind of being pushed towards sales. Like, hey, I think you'd do better in a sales role those kinds of things. And I don't think it's any individual person's fault, but it's a, it's a culture that for, for better or for worse, we have built around us and it reproduces itself unless we take action to prevent it from doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And so having the program at Minneapolis college, having the barrier to entry, just be, I want to learn how to fix bikes and I'm going to college opens up the doors for a lot more people to be able to kind of self-select into wanting to learn how to fix bikes. And then once they leave, they already have the education, they already have the experience. And that's a different approach from a shop's perspective. This is someone they don't have to train. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for most people that are working in a bike shop, is that sort of like their first job ever too? I mean, I imagine you you tend to attract like younger workers as well, or are people coming from like different industries and, and looking to get into working in a bike shop? A large part of the workforce is younger workers is somebody's first job. Uh, we're seeing a an interesting change with the rise of NICA. Um, where a lot of Nike racers will then get a job at their favorite shop and learn how to fix bikes. And a lot of these races are, are familiar, more familiar perhaps than your average rider with how a derailleur works, how shifting works, what the details of it are. And so they can kind of grok the concepts a little bit better. So I think we're seeing, we've always seen younger people in uh, mechanic roles, especially like starting into mechanic roles. Um, and then we're seeing it skew more towards mountain bikers. I think that's just because of NICA. Oh, wow. We do see people coming from other industries, people wanting it, wanting to change a change. I think we saw a lot of that in the last uh, two years, ever since April of 2020, people have decided that they want something to change and have 
either had the opportunity or the necessity to make that change happen. So we've seen a acceleration of that kind of career changing, gear shifting kind of thing. But there's still a lot of people who working in a bike shop is their first job. Yeah. Interesting. Roundabout answer to your question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And some people, you know, they go from English literature to bike repair. So you never know <laughs> where people are going to come from. It takes all kinds. <laughs> yeah. Well, I read that the Department of Labor predicts the demand for bike mechanics is going to increase faster than for a lot of other jobs in the next few years. I'm curious to know or you know, if, if you know why this is, was this the case before COVID or is this something because of COVID? Like why, why the need for more of these jobs? I think that it was the case. It was definitely the case before COVID and the COVID bike boom just kind of exaggerated the problem that we were having. Uh, the bike industry was definitely in a growth period before the bike boom, but has been dwarfed by what happened in 2020 and 21. But because of that growth, it meant that more people were riding bikes, particularly more new bike riders who didn't know much about the machines that they were riding and probably didn't want to have to know that much about the machines that they were riding. There's a lot of recreational riders out there or even a lot of technically skilled mountain bikers, just to like zero in on a niche, that have a lot of skill riding their bike but don't want to and shouldn't have to <laughs> learn how the details and the minutia of adjusting the chain gap on the rear derailleur. They can pay somebody to do that. And I think that the increase in the prevalence of mountain biking um, and other kinds of biking has increased the demand for professional repair services mm -hmm. and has increased it at a rate that the industry hasn't been prepared for. And the bike boom just made it so much worse. So having, having a professional training program that produces consistency and a high level of skill is something that I think, you know, we needed this in 2019. And the, the bike boom that happened in the past two years has just re-solidified over and over again how much we need this. There's going to be more work for more mechanics in the, in the future. And so we can take, we can take all the skill that we can develop. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah, that's interesting. And, and that's good news for people who are interested in pursuing a career in the bike industry, because like you said, a lot of people are looking to change careers and, you know, there's always uncertainty um, around, you know, is this job going to be around in, you know, five or 10 years? And it sounds like uh, this is one of those jobs that will be so when someone does learn to become a bike mechanic or when you first start teaching repair skills, what's the first repair that you start with? I think the, the place to start that makes the most sense is the flat fix or the tube replacement. It's the most common repair by far in any shop. Uh, you, can, you can walk in any shop and usually find somebody doing a flat fix. It's pretty rare that that's not a thing that's actively happening in a bike shop. And um, it covers a lot of the fundamentals of tool use, of professional mechanics, of mm -hmm. how to set out a job, the, the structure of how it works. It kind of, it's, a, it's a low stakes way to get into all of the kind of paratexts of being a bike mechanic and you know we use tools sometimes 
fixing flats, removing tires. And I think the like kind of ice cream on top of it is that it demystifies the tire tube rim combination for a lot of people. A lot of uh, people who maybe want to learn how to fix bikes, but have no clue what's going on are usually confused about, or maybe confused is the wrong word, bemused about <laughs> exactly what's going on with that tire, that tube, the rim strip that's in there, the rim, why are these holes, where are these holes in the rim? Yeah. What's, what, what is the bead? People keep talking about the beads. So I think <laughs> getting down and naming the parts of a tire, getting the tire off of there, finding a repeatable way to find the flat and remove whatever's causing it and then get a new tire in there and inflate it without blowing it up is, a good small small challenge to jump over for a first repair. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, and it's it is fascinating. I mean, th- that's what I would have guessed too. I mean, if I was you know if I had a friend who like just got a bike and they were like, I don't know how to do anything, you know, I would probably tell them, well, first thing you need to learn how to change a tire. And so I think that's like a skill. It's surprising that not everyone even knows that. Not even every biker does, but maybe. They don't need to because, yeah, they're busy people and they want to just ride their bike and have fun and and trust their local mechanic to handle that for them. Yeah, and every bike needs to needs to have tubes in it at some point. Even uh, even tubeless mountain bikes, you need to have a tube just in case. Right, that's that's true. Right, all these trailside repairs. I'm thinking, man, you know, if if you don't know how to how to do the basics on your own bike, you could get yourself into trouble walking home with your bike on your shoulder. Yeah. Well, it seems like your course features a good bit of practical learning, but I imagine there's also another side of it that teaches mechanics basically how to problem solve and to troubleshoot. I know, you know, for a lot of us who who went to college, you know, a big part of what you learn there is like how to think, you know, like you're not learning, you know, all the things that you need to know in your job. You're just learning how to like, address problems and and how to figure things out kind of on your own once you're out of school. So how do you teach that when it comes to bike repair? Are people coming in thinking like, you're going to show me exactly how to do this and I'm just going to memorize it? Or are they really able to learn how to like figure things out on their own? So I I take a a kind of two-pronged approach to this, um, a systemic approach to um, bicycle components and an application of fundamentals. Okay. The systemic approach is understanding that each component in, say, a shifting system is a part of a system. So the shifting system is the chain, the chain rings, the cassette, the rear derailleur, the cables, the housing, the shifter. And the, the important thing to get to with the system approach concept is that when you're shifting, it's not just your chain moving from cog to cog. It's this whole system working kind of in tandem, in symphony, in order to function correctly. And a problem that occurs at any point in that system can propagate throughout the system. So your chain might not move correctly from one gear to the other, but that doesn't mean that it's your chain's fault. It could be the shifter's fault. It could be the cable's fault. It could be the derailleur's fault. Right. And then once we get to that kind of scope where everything is a part of a system and when you're looking at any system, you have to think about the whole thing, then we can apply the fundamentals of how those components work. Mm. 
So systemic approach plus an understanding of the fundamentals of how all of the system works Mm -hmm. when learning to adjust rear derailleurs, for example, I don't just demonstrate how how the procedure works and have people memorize it by rote and then check that they memorized it and can adequately perform one procedure. Instead, we drill down into how the derailleur moves. Why does why does this derailleur have a parallelogram? What does a parallelogram do? How does it describe the motion of the guide pulley? What are these funny screws doing and why do they hit the parallelogram? How can we use them? How could we how could we take advantage of these screws to change the way this derailleur behaves? Mm. So getting getting people to really kind of play with the components and experiment with the different ways that you can manipulate, for example, just a rear derailleur and cause it to behave in strange and incorrect ways, <laughs> but at least yeah. getting to the point where you can make it behave how you want to make it behave. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, Stating the actual correct procedure for adjusting a rear derailleur, hopefully, is almost a formality. Like, if you can understand the fundamentals of how all of these parts works, you should be able to deduce the correct procedure for adjusting a rear derailleur. And if I can get somebody to the point where, let's say, they they come to the realization of how a derailleur adjustment would work about a minute before I say it, <laughs> That's the ide- ideal ideal version of uh, teaching in this class because that the the student who gets to the answer in that method will be able to apply those fundamentals in situations where the derailleur isn't functioning in the way that you would predict that it is, mm-hmm. and the way that it is functioning, the way that it is malfunctioning tells you gives you information about. At what point in the system is the problem occurring and with which part of the system is the problem occurring? That and then an understanding of like the most basic version of the scientific process, removing confounding variables, isolating components, and not changing two things at the same time. With If you, if you can get to all of that, I'm pretty sure you can solve any problem on a bike. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's impressive that it's such an academic sort of approach to it. And yeah, I mean, it reminds me of like math class. The part I hated the most was like when you had to prove a theorem, right? And it was like, you know, why does this work? And I would be like, I don't care. Just tell me how I have to do it. Do people get frustrated with that? Is this like a new way of approaching bike repair knowledge? Um, I'm not sure if it's a new way. Um, it's definitely the um, it's new to me. I it's the way that I've decided to approach this problem and and people definitely do bristle um a little bit at the, my refusal to answer the question like I, I'm purposefully withholding knowledge and you know you get some people that know parts of it and just really want that answer but I think that the the reason that I withhold it isn't isn't just out of some sense of malice but I think that if you if you already know the answer, it kind of narrows your scope too much. You kind of get these blinders on of like where the correct envelope for adjustment is. And in doing that, you lose the experimentation and the knowledge of what all of these parts can do. Even though we would never do it, we want to know what they can do so that we can identify what's, what's doing, which component, which part of which component is performing which task 
really helps you isolate problems. So yeah, people definitely bristle at me not answering questions. Um, but I think that hopefully we're all better for it at the end of the day. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about continuing education, e-bike repair skills, and the advantages of working in the bike industry. Stay tuned. If you haven't already rated and reviewed the Single Tracks podcast in your podcast app, now's the time to do it. We're randomly selecting listener reviews to read on the show, and if we choose yours, you'll get a free Single Tracks hat in the mail. Hit pause right now, write a quick review, and then listen to future episodes to find out if you won yourself a hat. Happy trails. And we're back. So Casey, what does your prospective student look like? You were mentioning sort of the lack of diversity in a number of bike shops. What what does the prospective student look like currently? And, and what do you hope the prospective student might look like in the future? Sure. Um, I think that Women and people of color are underrepresented in the cycling industry. And the the program that I'm teaching isn't necessarily built to be a tool to solve that exact problem. Mm-hmm. But it is, um, it is an open door in the way that getting a job at a shop with no experience isn't an open door. So um, I'm very excited about uh, the diversity of the student body that I'm working with and what they're going to be able to do in the the industry moving forward. I think that mm-hmm. a prospective student for this program hopefully is anybody that wants to wants to learn how to fix bikes at a professional level. Mm-hmm. We learn the skills of fixing bikes and then we master the skills of fixing bikes and we master them as fast as we can. Um, I think that one of one of the reasons that bike shops as they are today reproduce their workforces of largely white male workers is that when you get when you get a bunch of men together in a bike shop a, a certain environment usually presents itself it it can be a kind of locker roomy environment um you can get offhand comments, little jokes that I don't think anybody's doing on purpose. I don't, I don't attribute any malice to any of these individual people, but it definitely produces a kind of air of unwelcomeness that nobody's doing on purpose. This isn't, you know, it's not like, oh, you're not cool enough to work in our bike shop. It's just that, you know, when in a, in a bike shop full of men, when two men accidentally touch each other, sometimes you get a kind of no homo response that happens and that sends a message. And I don't think that there's, you know, something bad or malicious about those men who are trying to diffuse the tension that they seem to feel. But I think that for a lot of people who aren't white men working in bike shops can, can feel, you can feel a kind of attrition in, in that kind of environment. And so kind of moving, moving away from the question, but I think that one, one of the big focuses that I have is that just producing diverse students and then asking them to go fix the environment that we have is gonna re, is going to reproduce the same problem that STEM has. STEM has a problem where there's not enough women in STEM 
Um, and part of it is an environmental problem, is an atmospheric problem. And the, the solution that we tried is make there be more women in STEM. And that kind of helped. But now the women in STEM are facing an environment that is rather hostile towards them. Not across the board, but it's a thing that happens. So what I'm, what I'm hoping to achieve is a population of graduates who not only generate a welcoming environment, but disincentivize that unwelcome, unwelcoming behavior, if that makes sense, who are active stewards of the community and work together to change the, change the culture of repair shops, which is a, there's a lot of momentum and it's a big, it's a big boulder to get rolling. But, you know, we're going to start rolling it as slowly as we can, and we're just going to keep moving forward. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, like you said, it, it takes time, and, you know, this is just sort of one part of that. And, you know, I guess part of the hope, too, is that you're training these future leaders, right, who will eventually, not right away, but eventually they're going to be in positions of power where they can, you know, be the shop manager or the shop owner and they can facilitate those environments that way and they can hire people that look like them. Maybe not even people who had a professional bike education, but people off the street who it's their first job and well, now all of a sudden your your bike shop owner or manager is a woman and, you know, she's she's hiring all kinds of people. She's going to be more open to hiring them. So, yeah. That's that makes a lot of sense. That's the dream. Yeah. Well, is there any sort of continuing education for bike mechanics? I remember years ago when Interbike was a thing, the brands would have sort of their own like I, I would put air quotes around it, like continuing education. Really, it was like, oh, we have a new fork. Like, let us tell you how to work on this specific fork. But beyond that, sort of industry provided stuff. How do bike mechanics? continue to sharpen their skills? I think a lot of it is still in the vein of like it's brand specific stuff hmm. and it's those brands releasing, releasing new information about their new products. So some of it is still, um, we've got a new fork. Here's how you work on a new fork. We are seeing uh, increasingly brands produce material that is more theory based and is more generalizable so that you can you can you can learn that information and then go and apply it to many different many different brands many different products it's not just hey this bolt needs to be 6 newton meters and that bolt uses this tool and this bolt goes here and don't put it there before the other one we are still seeing a lot of there is still i should say there is still a lot of that brand specific that component specific stuff um a lot of it has moved online so there's a lot of information. There's a lot of training that you can do online. And then a lot of brands, particularly tech reps for brands, will host webinars or mini clinics inside of a shop. So you'll get, for example, a SRAM tech rep that comes around or hosts a webinar on uh, the bleeding edge bleed, how, how to perform the bleeding edge bleed, tips and tricks, how to get good at it, how to do it quickly, those kinds of things. So the continuing education is there. It's probably more there on the e-bike side of things, but it is still kind of that component-specific, brand-specific stuff. 
Yeah. Well, that was going to be my next question about e-bikes. Do t- today's bike mechanics need additional skills uh, to work with things like e-bikes? I mean, before bikes were strictly mechanical, um, and now we're introducing like electricity and electronics. I mean, even our shifters and our um, dropper posts and all kinds of things have it now. So, so is that like a different skill set, or is that something that you think bike mechanics are able to pick up pretty easily? I think that, it, it, you know, it's a little column A, little column B. E-bikes have all of the maintenance concerns that acoustic bikes have. But then, you know, you add a motor, you add a battery and a control unit and a head unit and maybe some lights um, and all those kinds of things. And on an e-bike, that is where you might develop problems. And, you know, e-bikes are exploding in popularity. They're year over year, they're growing at a unprecedented rate. Like we can't keep up with it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think that there are some transferable skills from working on electronic shifting systems, particularly moving from E-Tube to Steps, um, like Shimano's electronic shifting system, moving to Shimano's e-bike system. (laughs) Um, They made it easy. They made that a transferable skill, which is nice. I think that there, there are definitely some skills that are in no way in the bike mechanics wheelhouse by necessity. Like how to use um, a voltmeter to test for continuity, to test to see whether or not a battery is functioning. There are those fundamentals that I talked about that if a mechanic has them, they are applicable. So in in the e-bike world, being able to eliminate variables, being able to change one thing at a time um, is like beyond helpful, it is the absolute bare minimum for figuring out what's going wrong with an e-bike. Because if you change too many things at the same time, you'll have no idea where it was and what happened. And a lot of the components on an e-bike from the mechanics perspective are a black box because we don't want to be opening motors and replacing brushes and soldering circuit boards. And I'm pretty sure the manufacturers don't want us doing that. So to a certain degree, it's, I've got this mystery box and I'm going to replace it with one that I know works. And then I'm going to make a note about what changes. So having a variable approach is something that's really important. And then knowing how to use some electrical tools and then different brands are producing different software and diagnostic tools. And some brands have huge support for that. And some brands don't. So having kind of a, a baseline uh, response to an e-bike is something that every mechanic needs to have in their wheelhouse and could be produced out of those skills that um, very good mechanics have. But there's there's some there's some stuff on top that you know you've never no one has ever taken a voltmeter to their bike before e-bikes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I hope That's not at any rate. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah. I mean, talking about how certain parts of our bikes are getting more complicated and and you mentioned you know that manufacturers they probably don't want you you know opening up that motor entirely i'm curious to know is right to repair a conversation that that people are having in the bike industry i know you know for a lot of shops for a lot of shops is probably they're going to be an authorized dealer or you know they're going to kind of know where they're allowed to touch things and where they have to just like send it back. But is, is that a conversation people are having about whether they can even work on certain things? 
Uh, I haven't heard so much about right to repair in the e-bike world, or you could imagine it showing up in the e-shifting world. And I would say that's mostly because of a lack of interchangeability between brands and because of the complexity and maybe dangers of the things that we're talking about. One of the reasons that I don't want to be working on the the inside of the components on e-bikes, and I'm pretty sure the brands don't want me doing that, is because if you start taking a lithium-ion battery apart, you're going to run into a lot of problems, and you very quickly need to like have an electrician's degree or be an electrical <laughs> engineer. So I think yeah. that the like uh, knowledge ramp is really steep when it comes to those things, and you know maybe it's just because I've never gone down the rabbit hole of figuring out how how these motors work and maybe I, maybe I should you know go for that dive and figure out what I can but I think I think I I'm close enough to electrocuting myself at this point that I should <laughs> you know maybe maybe pump the brakes on that one um it would be an interesting conversation uh to start to see whether or not you know someone would let like a brand would let me take apart their electronic dropper post and solder stuff on the circuit ports. I know that, uh, I guess, in that same vein, there's maybe maybe problems or not problems, depending on your perspective, of peop- people uh, soft modding and hard modding their e-bikes right. yeah. to go faster, mm-hmm. um, which, I mean, I'm, I'm basically afraid of everything, and mountain biking <laughs> is scary enough at regular speed. <laughs> so I definitely don't want to go any faster, but I know there's people out there that are doing it. And so that could be a point of contention between land stewards, brands, and consumers that want to have control over the things that they've purchased over their property. Yeah. Yeah. There are definitely legitimate reasons why brands would say, no, we don't want you tinkering with this. But you know, then there's also reasons that consumers might want to do that to make it work better for them or, or just, you know, bikes are a big investment. And so, you know, for your, your bike to be bricked because like, you're not allowed to make this repair that maybe is really simple, but brand is, is holding you hostage over. Like that doesn't feel good either. So it could be, could be an interesting, interesting development. Well, beyond being able to work on bikes, what other sorts of skills do shop employees and, and future shop managers need to develop? Hmm. Uh, like past the actual mechanics of fixing a bicycle, I think the the number one thing that a bike mechanic needs is time management. Um, and like coupled with time management, some business skills, like knowing when to repair versus replace, because um, it's every bike mechanic's favorite thing to take it all the way apart, fix it, and put it all the way back together. But a lot of times <laughs> it's cheaper, it's more effective, and you get a better result when you replace the component. So, you know, knowing knowing where that line is, knowing where that drop-off in diminishing returns occurs, I think that the, the other side of that is not giving time away for free. That's a problem that some bike shops definitely have that we have in the industry of mm-hmm. handshake deals, giving things away for free, giving our time away for free particularly, which is a, a difficult conversation. But I think that training highly skilled mechanics involves instilling a, a business sense and a time management sense um, so that we can we can run our bike shops as the businesses that they are. 
And then on top of that is uh, customer service skills and communication skills. Working on bikes necessitates working with the people who ride those bikes, which means that you can be the best bike mechanic in the world, but if you can't communicate effectively um, and considerately, you're not going to get very far in the industry. Yeah. And that might not might not be the the best thing to be true, but it's a thing that is true. And so time management, business skills, customer service, particularly with an eye towards communication, understanding that when somebody walks in with a bike and says the gearbox don't work, they might not mean what you think they mean. And being able to get to that point without without being sounding like the pretentious bike mechanic. <laughs> right. so, oh, you mean the derailleur? Like don't yeah. not going down that road. Yeah. But understanding what it is that somebody's saying, being able to talk to them on their terms, and then also actually giving them what they would like to pay for is maybe more complicated than a lot of people think it is. Yeah, yeah. Man, those are all such great things too, because yeah, as you're going through that list, like I've experienced every one of those things many times over the year, you know, like you, you go into a shop and, and yeah, somebody could be really condescending toward you and, you know, just assume you don't know anything. And then there's a time management thing where you're like, Hey, I just need this simple repair. And they're like, okay, yeah, drop it off. It's going to be two weeks. And you're like, well, okay. Like that, that's not exactly what I want to do. Um, and then, and then, yeah, also, what was the third one? I forgot, but yeah, I've definitely experienced all of that. And so the more that you're able to, I guess, fix those, those issues or or at least make mechanics aware of them seems like a positive for like the whole industry. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) Well, are there certain repairs, uh, that, maybe you and, and other mechanics think are more fun or more satisfying than others. You mentioned that mechanics take a lot of pride in like being able to take a thing completely apart and like make it work again, even though that's not necessarily the right thing to do. But, but yeah, what, what is the most satisfying do you think for, for mechanics to do? I think in, in the category of taking something all the way apart and putting it back together and it still works, Mm-hmm. Um, suspension damper service is pretty mm-hmm. high on that list for it's incredibly complicated. Um, mm-hmm. It's easy to get it wrong, um, and <laughs> it's pretty satisfying when you get it right. Um, yeah. Not everybody agrees with me on that. Some people absolutely <laughs> loathe um, working on mm-hmm. dampers. But suspension work, uh, wheel building, uh, some, people, some people really like working on shiny new parts, or some people really like restoring... Uh, old, old parts that maybe have sat around for a long time. You've got an old camping yellow rear derailleur on this bike and you can put a bunch of work into it and make it shiny and make it work again. Those are things that are also satisfying. Taking a bike that won't roll and turn it into a bike that moves fast and is what the customer wanted it to be. Um, those, those are all things that are deeply satisfying for most mechanics. Yeah, that's cool. Well, what are the jobs that nobody wants to do in the shop? Um, I think it, it might be a toss-up between front derailleur adjustments and creaky bike diagnosis. Uh, and yes. like most mountain bikers have kind of given up on the front derailleur thing, which like more power to you. I love it. Yeah, that was that must have been the mechanics idea. They they called up Shram and Shimano and were like, let's get rid of these things. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think it's a secret that most people loathe working on front derailleurs because they're, they're, they're simpler machines than you probably think they are. It's just a stick that's mm-hmm. pushing on the derailleur. And so there's, <laughs> there's a lot of ways for it to go wrong or for it to go right, but it doesn't feel like it's going right kind of thing. Yeah. It's mostly just that they're fiddly, but creek diagnosis is maybe, maybe the thing that mechanics hate the most because it, you know, you can, you can lose a lot of time into it and never succeed, or you can succeed and never know what it is that you fixed. And like both sides of that coin are just unsatisfying, unrewarding work. But, you know, people got creaky bikes and we need to make them creak less. Right. Yeah. That's, and the customer at least should understand that because yeah, we're in the same boat. We're like, we cannot figure this out and it's driving us crazy. And yeah, now it's your problem. But then I guess that's not satisfying because a lot of times, like you said, you can never fix it. So good to know that it's not, it's not just me and it's not just us uh, amateurs. Yeah, no, we, we often don't know what's going on either (laughs) To, (laughs) to really pull the curtain back. I mean, it's just being able, being able to isolate variables um, and to change one thing at a time. And I mean, sometimes when it comes to creek diagnosis, instead of going part by part and fixing it, um, I will just take out all the bolts, grease them, put them all back in. And a lot of times that makes it go away, but I never get to know what, what which, it was. And right. Which bolt or they yeah, will haunt me for the rest of my life that I don't know what <laughs> bolt on that bike was creaking, but it was one of them. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah. Earlier before we started recording, um, we were talking and, you know, you mentioned you had been teaching all day. I'm curious to know, like, what does the classroom look like? Is this like a typical college classroom where everybody's sitting at a desk or like maybe it's auditorium style or, or does everybody have a bike? Like, are you standing at a bike stand and it's, it's very hands-on? So the classroom is set up like a working bike shop. There's just no customers. Um, we've got benches, stools, workstands, tool chests, tool kits, um, air hose. There's laptops because we work on electronic bikes. Um, so it is, it is very much, uh, I call it the bike laboratory. Um, it, it's very much shop focused. Um, we do, we do sit down at the benches and, you know, we, we, we learn things. We, we learn about the history of the bicycle. We learn about the history of the derailleur, frankly. Mm-hmm. So there are sort of classic, what you would think of as a school environment, but it's it's kind of uh, transplanted into this bike shop environment where we're surrounded by tools. We've got bikes in the stands um, and we're working on them. And being in that environment enables a kind of, uh, like dynamic shifting between sitting down and talking about the, you know, the innovation of the parallelogram rear derailleur and then turning around and grabbing a parallelogram rear derailleur and moving it to see how it moves. And that, that jumping back and forth between a kind of lecture atmosphere and a shop like lab atmosphere, I think really helps um, keep people engaged because, you know, I, I, I think I would get tired of listening to me talk for four hours anyway. So that, that kind of keeping it interesting and then also helping to solidify the information by providing 
um, demos, props, and then also just being able to confirm what we're talking about with your hands. Like getting something in your hands um, can be incredibly helpful when we're talking about bikes because they're physical objects that move because of the way they're built and the way they're designed. So we, we move back and forth really quickly um, between working on stuff and talking about stuff and reading things. Uh, but a lot of it is bikes in the stand, wrenches in hand. <laughs> yeah, cool. And how long does the course last um, for people who are, are going to do it, sort of start to finish? Sure. Um, it's a 12-week uh, semesters, two 12-week semesters. Um, and it's about 8, 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. this semester um, is pretty much what we do Monday to Friday. I think next semester is a slightly abbreviated version of that, but it's, um, I would call it a, a full day. It's a pretty full week, mm -hmm. but they are, they are designed to be 12 week, 12 week courses at Minneapolis college so that in the spring, uh, when you graduate, you don't walk into a saturated labor market in the middle of May and all the bike shops say, where were you a month ago? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what's the cost for someone to attend the program? Oh, I have no idea. It is it is whatever the regular tuition, it's standard tuition. And then there are a lot of uh, financial resources available for students at this college. Um, so th there's a lot of financial assistance that is present. Um, and tuition is, is relatively low. Okay. So, yeah, cost is about $5,900 for the whole thing. So yeah, you graduate. And so what is, what's sort of the, the end goal? What is a career in the bike industry look like? Is, is it a good career? Is it something that people can, you know, see themselves doing for a while? And, and is it, does it pay well compared to maybe other things? Um, a career in the, in the bike industry is really rewarding and very fun I would say that um, working as a bike mechanic historically doesn't pay great. Wages are not the largest draw for a lot of bike mechanics. Um, this program, in conjunction with BIEA, the uh, Bicycle Industry Employers Association, is working to change that. BIEA graduate graduates, so any graduates from this program or the program at NWAC down in Arkansas, um, Northwest Arkansas Community College, um, have access to a job board that can only be posted to by members of BIA, bike shops that have bought in, um, and not just bike shops, I shouldn't say bike shops, vendors, anybody in the industry that want wants this to succeed and wants access to the graduates um, will be able to post jobs on that job board and um, those jobs will all have a salary floor of, I believe, $32,000. Speaking about this too, you know, I guess I'm, I keep imagining someone working in a bike shop, but obviously there are lots of positions where you need to know how to work on bikes and how to repair. There's assembly uh, sort of positions. Maybe that's not like as high up, but then there's like race mechanics. There's all kinds of positions, I imagine. Do some of the graduates, are they looking for those types of positions as well? Yeah, the, the, the graduates would be able to use these skills in a lot of different environments. Um, assembly, bicycle repair, 
there's all different kinds of bicycle repair, like um, working at a shop for consumers is one thing. You could be maintaining a fleet of bicycles for any any number of different kinds of organizations or companies. Um, working as a race mechanic is um, definitely an option. I think it would take some uh, addendums to like the way that we think <laughs> about fixing bikes because you know sometimes race mechanics have to break a bike to make it go fast. Um, just to get to the end of a race kind of thing. Um, but we, we've, we've chatted a little bit about, um, how that works. And then I think hopefully for a lot of the graduates, um, some people will definitely find work as a mechanic and love it and just keep doing that. And I think that there will be graduates who find work as a mechanic and then, want to move on and go be a rep for a vendor or want to move up in the business and take a buying position or um, a management position at a shop and the skills and the experience of working in a shop and knowing how to fix bikes is a huge way to get your foot in the door in mm. the industry. And if you, if you have experience at a shop that goes a long way towards a jump to any position in the cycling industry. So I, I'm definitely, I will definitely be excited for any and all of my graduates who get a job as a mechanic and stay mm -hmm. as a mechanic, but I will mm -hmm. also be very excited to see people get a job as a mechanic, work as a mechanic, and then jump to different, different points in the industry until they find, you know, what it is that continues to provide them that satisfaction. Or if they just think mm -hmm. that, you know, it's, it, it's, it'd be more interesting to be a tech rep for a company. So I think that there's, there's a lot of possible vectors to take, um, as a graduate of this program. And I think that a, the starting point for a lot of people is going to be as a working bike mechanic or as an assembly technician, um, building bikes for companies and then working on the bikes when they come back. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, we've interviewed, a number of people over the years and in, in all kinds of positions. Um, and, and, you know, people ask us a lot too, how do you get in the bike industry? And from the people we've spoken with, yeah, that's one of the main paths. Either you worked in a shop for a while or you're an athlete. So, you know, if you're, if you're really fast on your bike, maybe you can take that athlete path, but for the rest of us, uh, yeah, working in a bike shop is <laughs> it's probably the way to go if you want. I don't think I have any QOMs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, lots of jobs in the bike industry, and and we all got to start somewhere. And and working in a shop seems like it's it's one of the best options for sure. It's also really fun. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to geek out about bikes all day long for your job. <laughs> I've uh, I've been having fun for a lot of years. <laughs> that's that's great. Yeah, I'm always so jealous when I go into my local shop. It seems like they're having a lot of fun, and, and yeah, I wish I could just hang out there all day. <laughs> well, Casey, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us um, about the program, and uh, yeah, we wish you all the best of luck. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Well, you can learn more about the Minneapolis College Bicycle Assembly and Repair Technician Certificate Program at minneapolis.edu. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Mm -hmm.